Good evening and welcome to another episode of Nigeria Politics Weekly. My name is Nigeria's Best and co-hosting with me is Phoenix Agenda. We have two guests today. Our first guest is Dio. Dio is an investment analyst in Lagos, Nigeria. Our second guest is David Hundane. David is a writer and journalist. The three big stories, or the two big stories we're going to be discussing this week are firstly, the economy. There's been talk about the reversal of the border policy. There's been talk about devaluation of the currency. And there's been talk about the national grid collapsing. So we'll discuss those as part of the economy. And the second issue we'll be focusing on is insecurity. There have been reports that in the northeast in, of Nigeria, in a town called Koshobe in Bornu State, that between 43 to 110 people have been beheaded by Boko Haram terrorists. So firstly, to Phoenix, uh, the, the economy. Uh, the finance minister, whose name I keep forgetting, Zainab Ahmed, she seems to be, nobody seems to talk much about her in the news. Zainab Ahmed announced that the government might reverse its border policy. It says after a committee had reported on the issue. And they're going to present that report to um, Mr. President Buhari to get his uh, permission to reverse the policy. So the, the first question is, why have they suddenly decided that they need to reverse this policy after implementing it for a year? I think it's a great question, but I mean, I, I, I believe, I mean, having taking us into a recession, um, it became obvious to them that they had to do something that seemed positive, especially because they're still going cap in hand, borrowing up and down the whole place. I mean, she's trying to, she's discussing a $1.5 billion loan. I can't remember who's supposed to give this now, whether it's the World Bank or IMF. I keep... The World Bank. Exactly. It must be the World Bank. Exactly. So I'm sure that there's somebody is clearly saying, Look, we're not going to keep pumping money into your country. You're going to have all of these absurd policies. But in her in her commentary, the, the part I found most interesting was the fact that they said uh, they had found some learnings and therefore they were going to, um, I mean, be able to use that to, to drive a positive outcome. And I'm quite interested in what they, what they learned. Because quite frankly, it achieved nothing. I mean, nothing, I mean, apart from decimating the economy and, and um, not only making uh, things difficult for Nigerians and for traders, especially those close to the land borders, but also to for our neighbors. Um, so I, I'm quite keen to to find out what what they what she thinks they learned and and how they intend to put that to use. It, it, it was it, you know when you subjugate your economy to the whims of a, 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 an out, somebody with outdated notions of of how um, economies should run, um, you, you begin to, to do things in a very haphazard manner and, and, and pay for it. And the, the painful thing is it's Nigerians that are paying for it the most. I mean, part of what she said was that it's the president that would determine the date, I mean, <laughs> that would determine the date that they decide to, uh, I mean, uh, reopen the borders. Based on what? What's what's his frame of reference for determining that? I mean, we know that he has no background in, in economics that, that one can speak about. 
we know that his his thinking around economics does makes zero sense. So on what basis will he determine the particular date that they would reopen the borders? So for me, it's this this um, their fiscal policies have been poor, um, and they've been enabled by a central bank governor who who has abandoned his mandate. So I mean, there's as far as I'm concerned, they're just a bunch of clowns that are just you know just intent on destroying everything, and they're being allowed to get away with it. Not to, oh, thank you, Phoenix, because obviously you've explained the the sort of illogicality of the conduct of the finance minister and Buhari. But if we could rewind back for those of us who are not exactly uh, experts in economics, can you talk us through? So, what was the rationale for the? border closure policy in the first place. What, what were they trying to achieve? I mean, what, what they said at the time was that they were trying to check smuggling. They were trying to check smuggling and uh, and and uh, I think there was something else they talked about, about illegal exports of, I think, was it was it uh, petroleum products they were, they were talking about, but primarily to check smuggling. And it's taking them a year to do that. Um, but they do not on, but the, but the, it was clear to everyone at that time that the smuggling you were trying to check was being caused by you in the first instance because your policy simply made no sense. You were banning products that your country your country cannot produce, thereby making it inevitable that people will smuggle those things in because there was still the demand. So rather than fix the policies that you are setting that is creating the demand for these products, despite the fact that you are banning it everywhere. And, and the fact that your, your, your customs officials are corrupt, rather you decided to take a drastic measure to shut down your borders and even exacerbate the issue. So, I mean, the policies, I mean, they've put in place, created the problem. And instead of going back to fix their policies, they decided to double, uh, dig in and, you know, double down on the stupidity. That, that's, 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 what, that's what happened. And now a year down the line, having caused pain, having taken us into a recession, having taken the economy backward, now you're going to undo your... And, and that's, the, that's every single thing that they've done has been self-inflicted. So, and, and that's why you continue to see what we have today. Well, thank you, Phoenix. Uh, thank you for, for setting out the explanation, but in my view, it, it seems to leave more questions than answers. And perhaps uh, David can help me. Uh, David, Phoenix says... Yes. They closed the borders because they wanted to prevent illegal smuggling. But my understanding of how smuggling works is that you don't smuggle through legal borders. You tend to smuggle through uh, illegal borders or illegal borders or crossings. Precisely. So how do you close the official border to claim that you're trying to check smuggling? How does that work? Exactly. So, and I... I've lost count of the number of times I made this point to so the point it sounds like a broken record that first of all, as a country with, I think, I believe something like 3000 kilometers of known, you know, border uh, routes, border crossings, Nigeria does not, has never had the capability to man its borders, to police. Borders. So for you to come out and say, even if uh, you, the uh, crossings in question were actually marked, were actually demarcated, were actually known, 
for you to even say that you have some ambition of policing them was ambitious at best, presumptuous at best. But it was, you know, realistically, I mean, I come from Badagri, right? So every time I go home, there's a there's a flea market called uh, Vlekete Market, right? And you go there and you can get all sorts of clothes and bags and whatever, but they're cheap prices, right? You can see a shirt for 15 naira there. And that's because they've just come across, well, they, they didn't even come across the border. They came across the water. People literally float them in from Kotonu, like right behind my, I have a, I have a plot of land on Topo Road. Right behind that, you see smugglers literally floating past. There's no Navy, there's no Nimasa, there's nothing there. It's just water, you understand? It's just an international water boundary. And there's no capacity to manage. So I never understood what they meant when they said that they were trying to check smuggling by closing the border because the border is not the, the border is, is where people who have legal documents go to cross you know if yeah. you if you're trying to smuggle you don't you don't go to semi border you don't go to Idiroko. there are thousands of routes that, that even i don't know about that's the reality so and then the other thing that they said was that uh, somehow by closing borders that they're going to boost uh boost manufacturing boost productivity in nigeria so again that idea that uh by using the uh, the purported power of Nigeria's market, of Nigeria's demand as a stick, then we're going to sort of enforce this sort of top-down emphasis on, on manufacturing, on production. Hello. Which obviously has never worked anywhere. Hello, can you hear me? Oh yes, we can hear you now. You cut off a bit, but you're back. Right. So I was saying, well, everywhere else in the world that this has been tried, it hasn't worked. But obviously, that's never going to stop someone like Muhammad Buhari from trying it another 50,000 times. So my, my reading of the, of the uh, if, if I'm being charitable, my reading of the situation was that the advice that they had was based on something from the 70s or the 60s, that the import substitution policy could only be possible where uh, there weren't, where... Uh, uh, locally manufactured or locally grown stuff didn't have to compete with, you know, supposed cheap imports that people supposedly dump in Nigeria because there's also that perception that comes from somewhere, I don't know where, that people somehow want to dump stuff on Nigeria because you know, Nigeria has this huge market, which, I mean, Nigeria really doesn't have that huge a market, except you're counting the market for instant noodles or soup. You know, anything more than necessities, Nigeria has a really tiny market. And I think this has been addressed several times. The Nigeria's addressable market for anything other than bare essentials is anything between five and 20 million people. It's really not as much as we think it is. But unfortunately, the economic team or what passed for an economic team around the president was convinced that there is this huge, there's this huge market capacity and that the way to harness it to boost the productive capacity of Nigeria was to ban imports. So, and obviously, first of all, it's failed to, to achieve achieve the purpose of banning imports, because as you've mentioned earlier, you, you, you can't really stop them from coming in. They're going to come in anyway. I mean, these are people who have lived there for literally hundreds of years. They know this place in and out to a degree that the Nigerian government can never hope to be able to. So, you know, you can put the freaking JTF there if you want. They're still going to find ways to bring their stuff across the border. That's the reality. And then secondly, from an economic point of view, trying to use that sort of uh, demand side uh, crude economics to, to push productivity 
obviously isn't going to work because you haven't fixed the main issues that make Nigerian products uncompetitive, that make it difficult to produce in Nigeria, stuff like transport infrastructure, stuff like power supply. You know, those things obviously are never going to be fixed under this administration. So if, if I'm being very charitable, I would say it was a waste of time. And that's, and that's me trying to be very, very charitable. Beyond that, I, I really don't see what it was that they that were trying to achieve. And it's been, a, as, as Phoenix said, I'd really love to see what uh, Zainab Ahmed says that they've learned from this huge waste of everybody's time. Well, thank you for this, David. Uh, you've basically, uh, I think I, I, I agree with you. It, it makes no sense to shut the legal border when the smuggling is actually not coming through that border. You've now forced even more people to start engaging in smuggling. Uh, but Dyer, the other question I was going to ask is the finance minister, Zainab Ahmed, said a committee was set up to report on the effectiveness of the border closure. And it was based on their report that they've decided to uh, change course and they're waiting for Buhari's sign up. What I'm trying to understand is in governance, or maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I would have assumed before you implemented the policy, that's when you should have done the study to work out what its impact is or is likely to be on your economy. Is, isn't that the way it's supposed to be done? Or do you do it the other way? You implement the policy first and then start working backwards to find out whether or not it was the wise thing to do. I mean, indeed, I, I just think of it as a ridiculous excuse. Um, nobody or no sensible policymaker embarks on the policy agenda with um, huge consequences or implications without first looking at the full scope of, you know, the, the costs and the benefits to the economy, especially when you have an economy that has been struggling since 2016 or, or since 2015. So it is um, very crucial to ensure that, um, you know, you take full account of all costs and benefits before making that decision. And think of it as, you know, a way to ensure that you are doing your own homework and not put um, the Nigerian people or the Nigerian consumers and businesses through unnecessary pain. Because um, since that is what um, the entire country has gone, gone through over the past one year, now, um, let me just take us back a bit. They implement, implemented this border closure in August 2019, right? They first called it a partial border closure. Initially, it was imports that were presented, that were, you know, um, excluded. So they said, oh, we're not going to allow imports into the country. We have a partial closure of the border. Some months later, you know, around October, they implemented a full ban on importation of goods and exportation of goods, effectively shutting the land borders to any form of trade. Now, um, the Nigerian government cannot say they do not have data on sort of um, cross-border trade across the Nigerian Benin border, the Nigerian Cameroon border, the Nigerian um, Niger border. In fact, the Central Bank of Nigeria conducted an extensive study, you know, on that sort of informal trade, I think between 2013 and 2014. And um, trade across those borders, at least for, for transactions that were recorded, um, was I think over 3 trillion. 
as a den. Um, there's also a lot of published papers around what has driven, um, you know, sort of high informality in terms of trade across the borders. What has driven smuggling across the borders? There's a lot of literature on it. And contrary to what the Nigerian government believes, you know, the main, main agenda of this administration has been to promote agriculture, right? Um, they feel when you allow imports into the country, then it competes with locally made foods. And um, given all the you know, um, inefficiencies you have in the country, it will be hard for a Nigerian producer to compete well with imports. And that's a sort of driven, that is one of the reasons given for you know, um, the closure of the land borders. The second one, I think, which you've not mentioned is around security, um, which was that a lot of you know, illegal harms um, trade happens across the border. That was also one of the points they made. But I mean, it's, I don't know who, you know, um, the Minister of Finance thinks it's, I mean, she thinks she's talking to. This is a government that has um, a federal cabinet. This is a, a government that has uh, um, an economic advisory council, which has doing salami, which has um, the former central bank governor of Nigeria, Charles Solido. Those are one of the brightest minds in, you know, um, in terms of, I mean, some of the brilliant economists you can find in Nigeria. And you're telling me um, you consulted, you didn't consult any of these people, you didn't consult the data, you didn't consult acad academic literature, both local and you know, internationally published journals on the implications of such a decision. I mean, it is ridiculous to now say you are now constituting another committee to assess the effectiveness it makes absolutely no sense. We know that what has driven uh, um, trade, informal trade across the land borders is both related to Nigerian policies around tariffs, both tariff barriers and non-tariff barriers. Tariff barriers in the sense that for rice, for instance, you have a 70% tariff on rice. This is a product you cannot produce um, well within the country. In fact, um, with the recent you know, weather patterns, it's unfavorable to, for you to produce rice. Meanwhile, rice is very, very cheap internationally, and it is one of the most consumed staples in Nigeria. A sensible policymaker would want to ensure that people have easy access, um, um, you know, I mean, at least has access to rice that is cheap, safe, and you know, just convenient for people to eat. But instead, what they've been trying to do is to encourage local production of rice, which is very expensive, and to shut you know, the borders. And the implication has been that rice prices are shot up by more than you know, 40% over the last one year. And for the average Nigerian that has a lot of rice consumption, then you can imagine what the impact has been. So yes, um, um, I think they knew what they were doing. Um, they were aware of the full cost. I think they thought it was a cost worth paying um, as at the time they started implementing that policy. Because if you listen to MFLA, which was, I mean, MFLA is the central bank governor of Nigeria and is one of the ardent supporters of that policy. They've always said they are going to be cost, but it is a necessary cost to bear. But as you can see one year later, the economy cannot survive without opening that borders. Well, no, thank you for this, Dai. You've uh, set out the 
key issues. And, and in particular, you've talked about the, the rice because as somebody was telling me a few days ago, the bag of rice has almost quadrupled in price since 2015. So I can imagine, I can only imagine how much the poor ordinary Nigerians are paying because of this harebrained border policy that they now seem to be wanting to reverse. Uh, to Phoenix, the other aspect of this economic economy discussion is the devaluation of the Naira. Um, a few days ago, Emifli was on TV and he seemed to be rambling because I know I did economics at uh, secondary school, but he started off talking about demand and supply, how the value of the currency should be determined by demand and supply. And then he went on to start attacking people who were making excessive demands on the Naira. And apparently that's, that's on the dollar. Apparently that's what's causing the Naira to drop in value. And he seemed to be arguing against the basic principles of demand and supply. So, so two questions to you, Phoenix. Firstly, what was, what, what is really, what, what is driving Emir Fela's incoherent uh, approach to Naira value, devaluation? And secondly, what finally made him devalue the Naira to uh, 392? I always tell, I always tell people that uh, there's a Mifele 1.0 and there's a Mifele 2.0. A Mifele 1.0 in a, in a government that had sound economic credentials, um, that had people who you needed to at least carry along and have a proper discussion on, on, on sound um, monetary policy and all of that, did sensible things. I'm not saying he was the sharp, it was ever the sharpest tool in the shed, but at least there was some sense to the things that he was doing. I mean, in 2014, when we had the oil price crash, when we knew that there was going to be a fiscal crunch, um, we clearly devalued in November and then in February 2015, because that was, I mean, that was the right thing to do. I mean, you, 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 you all of a sudden had fewer dollars, you, you still had demand. What you do is, you, you up your price to, to bring the demand down. It's classic demand and supply. But from May 2015, enter a Mayfield 2.0, and all of a sudden he, forget, he, he gets into a government that is quite different, has, has practically zero economic credentials. This was a government that for the first six months, uh, the principal did not appoint any, any ministers. So there was no finance minister. There was no economic advisor. There was nothing. So it was just dance and it was simply body language. And Emefele 2.0 read the body language of his new principal and decided that this is the new tone that we would dance to. And that's why since then, and for the last five years, monetary, poli um, monetary policy, more importantly, the exchange, exchange rates um, policy that he set or what he's tried to do has been solely based on how Muhammad Buhari feels about um, the Naira and how it should exchange to other currencies. Forgetting that Muhammad Buhari does not control the markets, <laughs> so he can say whatever he wants, but he's not always going to get his way. And that's what's happened. All of a sudden, he became reticent to, to allow the Naira, I mean, trade in the manner in which you should trade, exchange at the true value, continue to hold on. And instead, the market taught him a lesson that we thought he had learned in, in 2015 going into 2016, when he 
when when the naira shot up above 500 naira when, while he was still holding on to 197 finally forced to to devalue at that time um and even promised to to float before he, of course he naturally pulled back but then again he's he's continued you know and and transformed into having multiple exchange rates and doing all sorts of nonsense so it, it, to your first question it, it's simply a case of a central bank governor who whether they have something on him or, or whatever, has just decided that he's going to dance to the tune of his political master rather than, than, than doing the, the right thing. And, 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 and to, to the second point about, I mean, about demand and supply and all of that and, 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 and uh, all the things that he's trying to do, it's clear that it's another losing battle um, him devaluing finally to 392 after he had ran, made that rant um, post the MPC meeting was was inevitable. I mean, you don't have the the reserves, you don't have the the FX re reserves to defend the naira. You never have. I've always made this point that the, the central bank has never controlled the, the 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 naira to the extent that they always thought that they did. If you look at even even Pre, pre 20, even all the way to 2016, when data was readily available, it was obvious that the inflow of FX into Nigeria, that the central bank was seeing less than 50% of the inflow into, of, of FX into Nigeria. So you never had full control for you to claim to be a market maker. You could not determine. You always, it, was, it was always inevitable that you would lose the battle to control the, the, Naira, uh, the exchange rate. And what you should have done a long time ago would have been to, to float the Naira and let it be and focus on, on policies that will truly drive your economy. And as your economy does well, then you can hope that, okay, your, your exchange rates will, will be wherever you want it to be, if that is your focus. But you see, this, this inane focus on what the Naira should exchange for and, and, and making that the center of, of policy has crippled um, the economy to an extent that all other things have failed to, because of that that's single-minded focus on something that you simply cannot control and cannot 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 help. Now you've devalued to three ninety two. Uh, you are you are saying to EDCs that you continue to pump money into that they must um, sell at this particular rate by fiat. <laughs> again, we, we, in another week we're sure that you probably have to devalue again or or say or make another announcement because it's out of your hands and all of these things that he says about oh it's 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 a fake market it's only five percent it's only that it's it's not true and that's why the 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 the, the market continues to send him a message that i mean you you will continue to be punished for what you're doing and and, and that's where that's where we are no thank you phoenix um i i agree it's uh it's rather bizarre that the central bank governor has abandoned his core duties to be engaging in battles with the dollar versus Naira, when he could have just let it float and focus on tackling other issues like inflation. However, I'll bring in David at this point, because what I want to establish from David is I know you're a journalist, you're a political journalist, so I'm sure you have access to information. So as you can see, even with the so-called devaluation, He's, he's brought the figure to 392. So one dollar is now 392. Meanwhile, in the black market, one dollar is 500 naira. So 
from a business or corruption point of view? What, what, what is going on? So how is this working? Is this fueling uh, underhand dealings with between government officials, Omefile and uh, Bureau de Changes? Or what, what is going on with that? Or what are they doing with that differential? So um, right now, I'm not sure I can say for certain what is going on right now. I don't think even, even Asu Rock itself particularly knows what's going on right now. But uh, if, we were to, if you were to have asked me this question in 2016, I could have given you the answer because, you know, unfortunately, I had very close contact with people who benefited in, in a very, very, you know, in, in a very positive way from, from so, so that. Can you expand on that? You, when you say people benefited, so ex explain the mechanics. So how will that work? So how this works is that uh, say you, and I'm, I'm going to mention names because um, I'm not in the country anymore. I don't really think there's any point, you know, pussyfooting around certain things anymore. So you are Samaya Lafontoa, Ismail Lafontoa, right? You, uh, you are the president's longtime associate. You know, you're with him throughout the campaigns, the failed campaigns. And finally, you've got your way into power. And you're looking for how to make a buck, right? You need some money. So what you do is you go get a loan, let's say 10 million naira, right? You have the uh, preferential access to the to the bank, right? MFA is basically your is 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 on your speed dial, right? And you know, if if the central bank has 10 million dollars left in its reserve, you you know, you can have access to seven million of that because that's how close you are to MFA, right? So leveraging on that relationship, you take out a loan, a naira loan, right? And you say you want to you want to import goods or something, right? You go meet a MFLA. Why other people have to wait three months or whatever for their form M to clear? You get yours the same day at the central bank rate. So at the time that that rate was like maybe 285 naira, and the black market rate was already touching 400, right? So you go, you get your you get your USD, and then you go sell it on the black market, sell it to a broad exchange or sell it to whoever wants to get it, and then you take out your profits, and then you go back and repeat. You repeat the same thing, maybe add uh, a bigger amount this time. And you do that, you cycle, you, you repeat that cycle six, seven, eight, nine, ten times. And, you know, in in the case of Samaya Fontoa, he became a USD billionaire in just about, just under a year. So that's that's how Forex round tripping works. Now, that's how it worked in 2016. As to whether that is happening right now, I cannot say for certain because the characters who were around then are either dead or, you know, not necessarily in you know, in, in the power circles anymore. There's a new cabal in Astro Rock. So whether that's what they're doing, it's possible, but I can't say for certain because I don't really have my eyes in there right now. But that's how these things tend to work in Nigeria. So, but um, with, in answer to the, to the wider question about what um, this Forex regime hopes to achieve, um, I think the only person that can really answer that question is Godwin Emefiele. And the reason I say that is, um, Regardless of whether you know he's under political pressure from the president to, to do certain things or not, he's not. He doesn't have a gun to his head. He's not being held hostage or anything. He's quite a powerful person in his own right. You know, he is doing these things voluntarily. So you would have to ask him exactly, you know, what exactly it is that he wants. You know, I I, I watched that bizarre press conference that he gave where he, he went on a huge rant. You know, talking about how you know analysts are supposed to know better, saying that this is the exchange rate, this is not the exchange rate, and blah blah blah. And then, like 48 hours later, you know, he devalues it. 
And, uh, you know, I, one thing that I'm never really quite able to understand about this current, and I'm, this is a, like a more general term, not necessarily an economic issue, like a political issue, is I'm not exactly sure why people affiliated with this administration have no problem making themselves look like exploding tomatoes. It's really bizarre, but he's not the only one to do this. Like, this is a constant theme running through this particular government. I don't know why they do it. I don't know what's in it for them, but this is a constant thing. So I would really love to have 10 minutes with MFA to sit down and ask him, sir, what are you, why are you doing this? You really don't have to. You know, you, the, worst, the worst that could happen to him is that he could resign. You know, and he'd still be a very wealthy man. Nothing would happen to him. He's fine. He's bulletproof. So I don't know what exactly, you know, I, I don't think it's money, especially. He has already made all the money that he wants to make, you know. He has already done all, all the underhanded deals he wants to do, you know. So I don't know what's in it for him at this point in time. You, you'd, you'd honestly have to ask him. Well, thank you, David. Uh, thank you for explaining the mechanics because I'm sure a lot of our listeners, and, and myself, I can speak for myself, I'm aware people are engaging in what they call round-tripping, but uh, it's always good to hear how it happens in practical terms. Uh, to die on, uh, there are two issues I'm going to probe you on. Uh, first is to do with the uh, devaluation or the, 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 the gap between the official rate at 392 and the black market rate at 500. How is that affecting foreign direct investment into Nigeria, or is it actually having an effect at all? Absolutely. Um, I mean, it's a big issue when um, the CBN governor decides to fight the market like it's, it's currently doing. And um, Phoenix already made very good points on, on why the CBN cannot effectively even control the market. Um, you can't set prices when you don't have power over the supply. You can't guarantee a supply of a good. You can't set the price for the good. And um, that is one of the major problems it's facing now. Um, almost all sources of FX into the Nigerian economy are under pressure. If you look at um, the normal goods trade, um, in, in Q2, for instance, Q2 2020, we recorded um, the largest deficit on record. So um, normally Nigeria would usually benefit from high oil prices and high oil production. But this year, as, you, as we all know, you know, oil prices are down to around $45 a barrel from around over $60 a barrel in 2019 and from around $71 a barrel in 2018. So that is a very huge source of pressure. You have, um, you have, oil production costs as well, because OPEC is trying to rebalance the market due to uh, um, you know, falling oil demand as a result of the, the pandemic. And we've had to take significant cuts as well. So that means you have a lot of pressure as well. So exports are greatly pressured. If you look at um, um, remittances, which has been one of the ways we've been able to also support the currency and you know, get inflows of dollars into the economy, um, there's also a bit of pressure. In Q2 2020, um, the same quarter, we recorded the lowest, I think, in a decade in terms of you know, remittance inflows into the Nigerian economy. Now, um, we know when the CBN tries to manipulate the markets, in a sense, 
you know, when you have a very wide premium between the parallel markets and the official markets that actually discourages the inflows of dollars, which is why you look at the central bank and you think, why do you guys think this makes any sense? This is basically, um, we're living the reality of 2015, 2016 all over again. Only no, this sorry, time. Sorry to cut you there, uh, Dario. I, I need you to explain in clearer terms. So you're saying the wide differential between the official rate and the black market rate yeah. is discouraging in foreign investment. But why? Could you explain in basic layman's terms why that is discouraging people from investing in Nigeria? Okay. Um, I'll use a very simple example. We have a lot of Nigerian diaspora, right? Um, some invest in Nigeria. Some, you know, just send money home to, to the families in Nigeria and friends. Now, if you want to send money from London to Nigeria, right, the CBN has mandated international money transfer operators, you know, the, the, the likes of, um, what are they called? Western um, Union. Western Union and so on, that they must not charge, um, I mean, they must not exchange your dollars or give, in, give you an exchange rate that is more than, I, I think, around 380 before, but now it's up to 390 following the devaluation of last week. Now, meanwhile, in the parallel markets, the rate is at 500 Naira. So if I want to send, if I live in London and I want to send 1,000 pounds to my parents in Lagos, um, would I want to go through the official channel? If I go through the official channel, or let's say I'm sending US dollars for instance, if I go through the official channel, I'm only going to be able to send 390,000 to my parents. But if I go through the parallel markets, I'm going to be able to spend, I mean, to send around 500,000 back home. It's the same way for businesses. Let's look at an exporter. You're an exporter, a non-oil exporter in Nigeria. If you want to bring back, if you export, let's say you export your the same seeds to Netherlands or any of these European countries, does it make any sense for you to repatriate your dollars into the Nigerian economy immediately? No, it doesn't. And I'm going to explain again. If I have $1 million in sales, in exports, if I bring it into the country, they are going to convert it at the official rate of 392 or 393. Meanwhile, if I want to import and I need dollars to import, if I go to the central bank or I go to commercial banks, they're going to put me on a long queue. Eventually, if they have any dollars for me, they probably won't be able to meet 20% of my demand. So in the end, I have to go to the parallel market. If I go to the parallel market to import, I'm going to pay 500, 500 Naira per dollar. So as an exporter, does it make any sense for me to import my dollar inflows at 390? But when I need dollars, the CBN will, sell, will say, go to the parallel market to go and get the dollars at 500 Naira. It doesn't make any sense. It's the same way it works for investments. If I'm a foreign portfolio investment, I mean, foreign portfolio investor, or a foreign direct investor, it doesn't matter. I want to come in at a price, at an exchange rate that I think is reflective of the current reality. Because if I don't, I'm going to pay for it. Now imagine this scenario. I'm, a, I'm an investor who wants to bring money into Nigeria. I have, let's say $1 billion in capital I want to import into the country. At the point of bringing it into the country, given the exchange rate system that we have in place, I'm going to get 390 billion Naira. But I know that 
the parallel market is doing 500 already. So let's even assume, you know, um, parallel market is influenced by a lot of factors, both, you know, speculative and genuine, you know, uh, um, demand. Now, it remains the fact that if the CBN does not price the, the exchange rate closer to what the market expects, then I could suffer a devaluation. Imagine after coming to after bringing my $1 billion to Nigeria, the next morning, the CBN suddenly really realizes that, oh, we need to devalue, and it devalue by 10% or 20%. It means I've lost money already. So when you have an exchange rate where there's a pricing differential between the parallel market, which is a better gauge of market demand, and the official market, then it is in it, you know, sends signals, negative signals to both consumers, businesses. Because it basically makes no sense for you. And as much as possible, you will try to protect your position. And that is why of late, I don't know if you've seen it in the news, the CBN has been harassing exporters to repatriate their money back home. But they're not going to do it because it makes no sense. And this is what happens when you've been able to create you know, a wide premium between the parallel markets and the official markets. Now, this happened in 2016 and 2017. This is why I'm saying it is not new. And if we have a central bank governor that is truly responsive and learns from its own actions, then we shouldn't be in the same situation in less than four years. Because you might want to think, oh, what consequences does it have for the economy? It has grave consequences. It means investors that should come into the country will not be comfortable coming into the country until they are sure that um, you know, the CBN is doing the right thing. That is one area. So you are shutting down investment. The second area that I think we've not looked at is even Nigerians do not have faith in the currency called the Naira. So if I'm in Nigeria currently, inflation is around 14.2%. If I buy treasury bills, treasury bills is offering 0.2%. Nigerian government bonds of 10 year is offering around 4%. If you go further, you know, into 30 year, you get around five to 60 cents. Basically, if I'm investing my, my, my hard earned Naira into the Nigerian economy, it means in terms of purchasing power, I'm losing money every year. So how do I protect my purchasing power? I try to buy stable currencies. And what are the stable currencies you have in the market? Dollars. And that is why all investment managers, at least in my own team, we've been trying to market dollar investment to Nigerians, to Nigerians. And basically what the MFLA has managed to do in the past one year is he has damaged foreign investor confidence and he has damaged local investor confidence as well. Because once most of people, especially me, once I get my money or my salary this days, first thing I do is convert to dollars because I have no faith in the um, ability of the central bank governor to control prices. If you can't control, if you can't give me, you know, um, single digit inflation, at least give me returns that will surpass the inflation rate. If you can't do both, then it's, it's a complete disaster. No, I must thank you, David, I mean, Dion, for this uh, good explanation, because you've clearly set it out to us in layman's terms why the disastrous uh, uh, failure to float the Naira 
is not only impacting foreign investment, but it's also damaging local Nigerians' faith in their own currency. So I must thank you for, for shedding light on these. Now to Phoenix, the final question on the economy. The national grid, um, according to the news reports, collapsed again yesterday. And I've read reports, this is why I'm asking this, because I've read reports in the past that to upgrade the grid, to be able to provide power for all Nigerians, both for domestic and business purposes, we'll need close to $20 billion. So the, the question, Phoenix, is if you could make this quick, uh, maybe three minute response is, why do we still keep hearing the same stories about the grid collapsing? Why not just, I don't know, privatize the grid or somehow raise the money to, to upgrade it so that it works properly? Well, they, they were supposed to have signed a deal with Siemens to to upgrade the grid, but I think I had spoken about this at some point and said, even the timeline for for that deal to materialize was too long for the situation we're in. But again, it, it, it's a it's it's a function of um, the fact that when they came in in 2015, they undid everything that was that was in motion. Um, and therefore lost a lot of time uh, just faffing around, doing nothing until they woke up in 2018 and then began to talk to Siemens, uh, which, which led to them signing the deal last year, which is even part of the reasons that uh, claimed the life of the former chief of staff. But I mean, one is not, given COVID and all of that context, one doesn't even know where that deal is and whether that would really materialize. And so the, the fact that we're seeing group collapse is, is something that Nigerians have to just get used to for the foreseeable future until they get the grid into a place where it, it can begin to work. But to your point around privatization, um, I mean, I think, I think that that's going to be a difficult thing for them to do now, given the, the, the state of decay and, and the way they've treated those who bought into the power assets. So, I mean, if you look at what they've been trying to do since 2015 to the guys who, to the discos and all of that, trying to take away that business from them, despite the fact that, yes, the discos haven't performed, but you also haven't met the conditions that were set in, in the MYTO and all of that. So who, who, who is going to be comfortable enough to bring their money to not only come and take an asset that is not in great shape, that they would have to spend a lot to bring it to a high level, and beyond that, who, who that you're not even sure in this in this environment with this kind of people in power that you that your investment is safe, that somebody's not going to wake up tomorrow and be trying to to steal it back from you. So I mean we just have to wait and see what happens with the Siemens deal <clears throat> and where that gets us to. Okay. And uh, no uh, and a final quick question to you, uh, Phoenix on this uh, one minute response. So and how how is this grid problem how is it feeding into the economic uh, crisis we're facing or is there no connection at all i mean there's there's always been i mean connection in terms of i mean the fact that we don't have stable power i i, I always say that that's the one thing that's held us back because nigeria with, with 180 million people with the kind of resources that we have should be a manufacturing hub no doubt about it especially where we are positioned on the map you're right bang in the middle of the east and the west we're in a better place than most locations to do that. But we've never been able to move forward simply because we don't have stable power supply. So the fact that we're still struggling 
seven years after um, um, the power industry was supposedly uh, privatized, to even get to a, a level, to even get to 5,000 megawatts of power is, is, is ridiculous. And you will have thought that when these guys came in, this would have been there. No, if that was the only thing they delivered, this country would be moving forward significantly. So absolutely, there's a, there's, there's a deleterious effect on the economy by virtue of the fact that they've not been able to do anything on par. No, thank you for, thank you for, for this, uh, Phoenix. Uh, it's good learning economics from uh, all of you. Uh, I'm sure our listeners too are enjoying the, and learning from the conversations. Uh, to David, we're moving on to insecurity. Uh, the yes. both, it was mainly the international newspapers and I think one or two local papers reported that in Koshobe, a town on the outskirts of Meduguri in Bornu state, that over 110 uh, farmers have been, were executed by terrorists, and most people think it's Boko Haram. Um, yes. What, what is going on? Like, is, is, it, is, is there no security there, or is it just a free-for-all uh, uh, killing spree with the terrorists these days? So it, it is something of a free-for-all. Um, I'm, I'm usually not one to... Um, to hold brief for the Nigerian army. But one thing I must say is that based on the, the interactions that I've had with people who have actually been deployed to the Northeast, the actual soldiers on ground, the JTF police or whoever, they actually, they actually do what they can in fairness to them. But the truth is that Nigeria is just is heavily under-resourced. Um, the scale of the problem for political reasons, Nigeria continues to understate the scale of the problem. Nigeria continues to pretend that it's just, you know, if in some little group of miscreants, some, you know, five to 6,000 group of, you know, scallywags who, you know, will, will overcome it. It's a lot more than that. It's a bigger problem. It's a growing problem. And it's, it, the problem has outgrown Nigeria and it's going to become a regional problem very soon if it hasn't already. So I worked on, on a report last year that was presented to uh, Mike Pence, the outgoing US vice president. And one of the things that, that stood out to me when the final report was produced, because this report had almost a thousand pages, it was, it's a really voluminous report, only 10 copies of it exist, and it isn't in the public domain yet. But one thing that stood out to me about the data captured in the report was the, the level of violence that is happening in the north i don't think even at this point we still fully appreciate what is happening you know we just see a few news headlines here and there 40 dead you know 20 killed five dead this that and there's a lot more that goes unreported there's the the entire upper half of nigeria like once you literally i was telling someone the other day even in the federal capital territory once you leave the city once you leave abuja even within the fct there is basically a no man's land, right? I'm not even talking about when you enter Kaduna. That's that's a whole that's a it's like another country, you know. And then before you start talking about Yobe, Borno, those are complete no man's land, free for all. Anything happens there, absolutely anything. So you saw stories recent, recently that uh, uh, subsistence farmers have to pay terrorists. They basically pay them protection money, you know, so that they can go to their farms and take out their harvest. That's the sort of thing that happens where there's just complete state failure. That's what is happening. The, the very corporate existence of Nigeria is becoming like an urban thing. Now, once you leave the major cities, Nigeria is like a very nominal 
entity. Nigeria no longer has the capacity to enforce, to enforce its existence in any meaningful way outside of its major urban centers. That's what well, is happening. I need, to, I need to clarify something further, David, on, on this issue, because the report also said the, the people who were killed were not even residents of the Northeast. They're actually people who live in the Northwest and they went to the no Northeast to work, to look for work. And I, I'm trying to understand, why would you leave the relatively safe Northwest to go to the Northeast, which is the, the hub of Boko Haram, to look for work? What, what, what are the dynamics in that arrangement? So um, I'm going to assume that this is this is farm work. This is this is agricultural work. And so, uh, first of all, there's the there's the, there's the environmental issue. Nigeria loses something like three thousand square kilometers of uh, arable land to the Sahara Desert every year, which is approximately twice the land area of Lagos State every year. And a lot of that land is being lost in the northwest. Right, a lot. There's a lot of desertification going on. Supposedly, there's a there's a regreening program going on, but I mean, the program exists on paper. There's a budget for it. There's no evidence that it has it has actually achieved anything. So what I'm going to guess, and this is this is basically one or two cuts above speculation, because again, it's very difficult to get a very clear picture of what is happening on the ground. But what I'm going to guess is that even as unsafe as the as the northeast is, it's still easier to find work there than the northwest, which is economically devastated. There is simply nothing to do in the Northwest. Now, the Northeast, uh, as I'm sure you're aware, uh, compared, uh, it's still comparatively, it's uh, it's not quite as arid as, as the Northwest. So uh, the, the Lake Chad Basin, even though it has been severely depleted over the past few years, still exists. There's still quite uh, some significant level of agricultural activity going on. In, in entire areas of the Northwest, People who used to do subsistence farming have completely lost their livelihoods purely because of desertification. And you know, so this isn't even an insecurity thing for them now. This is just an environmental issue that is right. So many of them are moving down south, many of them are moving to Lagos, which we've we've seen quite quite a bit of that. Uh, I've actually done quite a bit of work in that space as well. And I'm gonna guess that in this case, some of them have actually moved to the northeast as well as seasonal workers trying to you know, look for daily bread and you know, they met with that very unfortunate end. So ultimately what I see is that from, for me, the, the major takeaway is- oh, I, think we're, I think we're losing you again, David. The, the, the Nigerian state and, and externally imposed thing. Hello. Hello, Hello. can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you now. Right, right, right. Right, so let me just uh, back up a bit. So what I was saying was ultimately my impression is that the bulk of the breakdown that is happening in the ability of the Nigerian state to enforce itself is primarily an economic thing. The Nigerian government is very broke. The Nigerian government doesn't have the to enforce it. Previously, um, even though these, ex these extant issues have always existed in that part of the country, there was always some budget or the other to sort of put a lid on things, to subsidize things in one way or the other. To sort of, you know, that's, that way of life has, has always, the Nigerian government has always had the money to sort of keep it moving. And I think of recent, what we've seen is that that flow of cash has been completely turned off. The Nigerian government no longer has the cash 
to, to do certain things. So even stuff like uh, fertilizer programs, which have been going on for decades, you know, there's been this huge, as I'm sure you're aware, this huge uh, corruption story surrounding uh, the subsidization of fertilizers in Nigeria for decades for distribution to subsistence farmers in the north. Of recent, that program itself has suffered huge setbacks because the budgetary provision simply hasn't been there. You know, even paying civil servants has become a problem. So primarily, the Nigerian state just doesn't have money to keep itself running. And that is the, the fallout of that is what we're seeing in so many ways. Uh, in the security sense, it simply cannot raise enough of a military. Nigeria is proportionally the most under-policed state in the world. Uh, for reference, Iran, which has 120 million people, has an armed forces strength of about 800,000. Uh, active and reserve soldiers. Nigeria has close to 200 million people and has an armed forces strength of just under 250,000. Proportionally, it's the most under-policed state in the world. So that's what we're seeing practically here happening. So uh, as to what the solution is, well, <laughs> the solution probably lies with <laughs> MFA more than anybody else, because basically the Nigerian government needs to start raising cash, needs to start raising money. And I think the only realistic way for that to happen now would be to boost the economy and then boost its taxation revenue. So in the short term, I don't see any, any quick fix. In the short term, I think this, this kind of uh, uh, event is going to keep happening. It's going to worsen in the short term. But I think if uh, the Nigerian government as a matter of urgency embarks on those much needed economic reforms, then it will be able to fund the huge security operation that it needs to embark on to retake the North. Because essentially, what we have there is land that does not belong to anybody. Nominally, it's part of the geographical entity called Nigeria. In practice, the Nigerian state does not have any authority on the ground there. So that's that's pretty much how, how I see it. Well, thank you, David, for this. It's been quite an eye-opener, especially the way you've highlighted the fact that it's still better for people from the Northwest to go to look for work in the Northeast. That's quite an interesting, uh, because yes, the report did say there were farm workers from the Northwest who had gone to the Northeast to work. So I think you've confirmed that there seems to be more opportunities there, which in itself is quite a scary thing. But our, the, the final question goes to Dio. Dio, we have about uh, two minutes to go. So I'm just gonna quickly ask, get your view because you're an investment analyst so is, is this true, what David is saying? N Nigeria cannot afford to basically fund this war against Boko Haram? Um, Nigeria cannot afford to fund any war, <laughs> not even just against Boko Haram. Um, I mean, connected to, let me just bring on a related point around border security, which was a major issue for, for the land border closure, for instance. Um, one of the reasons why one of, um, I mean, that policy, that land border closure policy was doomed to fail um, even at inception was because there was no way to secure the borders. We have a very large border and we don't have the resources to deploy you know, security outfits all across the border to say, oh, we want to tackle smuggling. I mean, this is not even to mention you know, the corruption of even you know, um, police officers or security officials along the borders. But yes, um, David makes a very valid point. Um, Nigeria does not collect enough revenues. Tax to GDP is around 6%. It is considerably lower than what you get in peers. And by peers, I, I do not mean um, even 
foreign peers. I mean, even within Africa, a lot of governments collect more revenues than the Nigerian governments. Um, we've had a very, um, you know, a period of, you know, where we enjoyed very high oil prices, high oil production, and we've not really paid attention to finding ways to broaden the tax base and to, you know, collect more taxes locally. And one of the reasons for that is because we have a very high informal economy. Um, estimates, you know, from NBS to IMF uh, um, suggest that the informal economy in Nigeria is between 50% to 65%. So that is a very large, so when you talk about the Nigerian GDP, oh, we have the largest GDP in, in Africa. Well, you have the largest GDP in Africa, but when you talk in terms of formal GDP, which are actually businesses that, are, that have proper structures and that account for a lot, most of the taxes paid in the Nigerian economy, then there's not a lot of business on that end. And uh, um, it's not that I'm complaining, but- no, sorry, I'm, not... I'm sorry to cut you, uh, Dario, because of uh, time, but uh, we, our, our time is more or less up. So we have to uh, bring draw this to a close. But no, I must, I must thank you uh, because you've made some valid points that not only can we not afford to secure the Northeast, we can't even secure the border. So money is a problem. But I must, yeah. first of all, thank David and Dio for being here. We really appreciate your contributions. We must also thank our listeners at home for always listening and giving us helpful feedback. But until this time next week, I say have a fantastic seven days to everyone. Thanks, Nigerius Brest, and thanks, Diane and David, um, for your contributions. Thanks for joining us, and thanks to our mm -hmm. yeah. here. Bye, everyone. Take Bye. care.